If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 4 this morning. As we continue to make our way through Luke's Gospel, we come to the end of chapter 4 this morning. Just prior to this, you'll remember that Jesus has begun His ministry as the Christ, as the promised Savior. And He has just preached a sermon explaining what His God-given task is as the Savior and how He will carry it out. Now, Jesus shows us the power of His authority to actually complete that assignment. And as we are sitting here today, uh, here, about to hear the words of Christ, even as those in His day, almost 2,000 years ago, heard them, uh, we need to see and understand that this is important for us. It is actually in seeing Jesus' authority that we will find ourselves confident in Him today. Seeing His authority will give us confidence that He is both able to save us from our sins as well as care for us and protect us in every spiritual way. So I want to read this morning, Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 31, and I invite you to follow along as I read. Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve. Now when the sun was setting, all those who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. May God bless the reading of his word. As we think about this passage this morning, we want to see four ways in which the power of Jesus' authority is on display. Four ways that he is, in fact, still wielding authority today. First, we see that Jesus has authority through Scripture. Jesus has authority through Scripture. Just before this, you'll remember, if you were here, and if not, you can go back and and read the account this afternoon. Jesus had traveled to his hometown of Nazareth. And though initially, uh, Jesus was well-received by those there, they liked the words that he was saying, because he was saying, the work of the Messiah is about to break out upon you. The blessings of God are about to fall. He knew their hearts, and he knew. He knew that what what they didn't really want was the very thing that he was there to give. That they were not trusting in him to be the Messiah. And therefore, when he called them on this, when he called them on their faithlessness, they actually sought to kill him. It was quite the reception in Nazareth. 
Now he returns to a place that we will see as the Gospel of Luke unfolds, a place that is essentially his adopted home, the city of Capernaum. He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. If you have a study Bible or if you are a map guy, you will look and Capernaum is actually north of Nazareth. So how can he go down? Well, it's not about geography, it's about topography. Uh, the city of Nazareth was higher elevation than Capernaum. So yes, geographically he is going north, but topographically, or however you would say that adjectivally, he is going down to Capernaum from a higher place. He goes there and he is teaching on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. This is what we saw in the previous passage last week as well. Jesus going to the synagogues of the people on the Sabbath and opening up and proclaiming to them the word of God. And notice what sets Jesus apart from all the other teachers that they would have heard in the synagogues of that day. His word possessed authority. On one level, that simply means he was not like the popular teachers that they heard. And in fact, Matthew makes this very explicit in his gospel, that he was not like the other scribes and teachers. What made him different? Namely, that he did not rely on the comments of previous rabbis for the teaching that he was given. What do I mean, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that was all the other rabbis and teachers would have simply had a series of block quotes for the most part that they would have given to the people and navigated about maybe who should be believed over another. So, for example, one ancient rabbi's words that we have reported for us say this, I have never in my life said a thing which I did not hear from my teachers. Think about what he's saying there. I have never in my life said a thing which I did not hear from my teachers. In other words, no original thoughts. All of his theology is secondhand. It's not gleaned directly from the word of God. It is whatever I was taught, that's what I now teach. You can imagine what that would be like today for a sermon. So as we consider verse 5, Pastor Brooks believes that at this point Jesus is intent to save sinners. But in the next verse, biblical scholar Smith says this is moderated though by his desire to glorify God. However, commentator Jones says that we should imitate him in this, yet I'm not convinced because Smith gives, I mean it would just be boring. I would get bored listening to that kind of preaching. That's not the kind of preaching that Jesus did. He spoke with authority. He did not need to quote the other rabbis because there is no greater authority than Jesus himself. Jesus wielded the word with such authority because it's his word. It's the word of God. He was God in the flesh. As we think about Jesus' authority in the scriptures, the question for us is simply this. How do we listen in light of Jesus' authority? How do we listen to the word? Believing that God is speaking to us or ignoring it as if it's just another book? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves. You know, I saw what was really the most amazing video this past week in light of uh, all the activity in the Catholic Church and the election of a new pope. There was this interview between Piers Morgan and Penn Jillette you may know Penn Jillette from the famous entertainer musician group uh, Penn and Teller. Uh, he's a real big guy. He's the one that talks. Okay, Teller is the one who never talks. And this guy Penn has written all kinds of books. Uh, he's got a uh, a TV show that he was on for a while that I can't say the title of. And uh, he is a, a a profound atheist. He writes books about uh, about atheism. Piers Morgan, on the other hand, uh, uh, works for CNN, I believe, and he has this talk show, and he is a professing Catholic. 
And so Piers Morgan is asking Penn Gillette about Catholicism and about his opinions. And what winds up the most mind-boggling thing, Penn Gillette knows Catholicism better, more consistently than Piers Morgan does. And so Morgan is making the, the argument, is asking the question, don't you just think that, that the, 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 the bishop and the cardinals and the pope, that they should just get the Catholic Church up to speed with the times? They should just drop all these things that they've had about gay marriage and all these other things, and, and, and let's, just, let's just get the church in the modern era. And, and Penn's kind of scratching his head saying, no, no, that doesn't work that way. We don't get to vote on what God says. We don't get to vote on what God believes. And so he's actually instructing a professing Christian about the doctrine of inerrancy of the Bible. It's pretty amazing. Now, Penn doesn't believe the Bible is authoritative. He doesn't believe it's accurate. But he gets the point. If there is a God, and if that God is spoken in a book, you don't get to decide which parts to believe and which parts to throw out. The question is, is that how we live? Is that how we live with the authority of Christ through the scriptures? The reality is every time we pick up this book, every time we hear a sermon or, 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 or enter a Bible study, we are engaged in a spiritual battle. Will we hear with authority Christ proclaiming his word or will we ignore him? Will we rationalize away the conviction that we feel? Will we excuse ourselves from the changes we are being called to make and how we live or think? When we read God's word, we need to see it as authoritative, that it is God's word and not the words of mere men. We need to see it as something to be believed, for God is truthful and wise. We need to see it as something to be obeyed, for God is righteous and sovereign. He is the ruler over our lives and is able, worthy to say, do this and don't do the other. Jesus reveals his authority through scripture, and here he also reveals his authority over spiritual forces. This is the second thing that we see in our passage. Jesus has authority over spiritual forces. Jesus is preaching in the synagogues, but he's not there without resistance. Luke says that in the midst of some being astonished by his authority, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now from the outset, when we read a passage like this, we need to know there are basically two ways to respond to it. C.S. Lewis understood this in his book, The Screwtape Letters. He says this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race could fall about the devils. One is to believe, disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. We want to think about both of those things as we consider the reality of spiritual forces. The reality of spiritual forces. forces. The first response is to say it's all fiction. I mean, come on, this is 2013, right? Demons? Isn't that the kind of thing that's on the WB network or whatever it's called now? You know, the CW, you know, that kind of, you know, supernatural stuff, you know, horror movies, you know, uh, vomiting pea soup on the movie. You know, I mean, come on, who really believes in that kind of stuff? The other mistake is to believe that we live in a Frank Peretti book or a chick tract where everything wrong in the world is the results of demonic activity. If a baby cries in church, it's because there was a demon pinching his little toe. If, if, if you have a problem or your friend has a problem with alcohol, well, they just have the demon of addiction and they got to get that demon out of them. The first mindset is wrong because, very simply, God says there are demons. 
The scriptures teach that God created all things, including angelic beings, and some of those beings decided to turn against God. And now they have been cursed for an eternity in the torment of hell. But in the meantime, they roam the earth seeking to thwart God's purposes. That's what the Bible says. And you either believe that the Bible is true, that it is God's book written by men, but not just from the minds of men, but God superintending the minds of men, so that what is produced is not just the words of men, but the very words of God, and therefore what it says in its totality is true, or you say that part of it is not true, in which case you undermine all of God's word because now all of it is up for grabs. You don't get to pick and choose what the Bible says. So if the Bible says demons exist and you believe the Bible is true, then demons do exist. The second mindset is wrong because it gives demonic forces too much attention and too much authority in the world. Sin is not demonic in nature. Now, what, I mean, what do I mean by that? Do I, on one level, that's not true. It is demonic in nature. But what I mean is it is not from demons. That's what I mean. Sin is not inherently demonic in that sense. You cannot blame the devil or a demon. You only have yourself to blame when you sin. The Bible does not endorse Flip Wilson theology. Some of you know who I'm talking about there. Some of you have no idea. You're thinking, who's that? And you're going to Google him later, not now. He was, he was, he made, he was made a famous comedian who always said, the devil made me do it, the devil made me do it. And we often talk that way today sometimes. We excuse our sinful behavior by claiming the devil made me do it or or something similar. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that you are the one who is to blame. It is your sin that springs from your heart. That doesn't mean that demons are not able or unable to influence people. It simply means they are not all powerful and that every decision we make is our own. Just because they aid in tempting us, we are still the ones responsible for giving in. We are still the ones sinning. That's the reality of spiritual forces. But notice also the fear of these spiritual forces. The fear of these spiritual forces. When Jesus shows up, they know exactly who he is. They know he is Jesus of Nazareth. But more importantly, they know that he is the Holy One of God. Here's the sad reality about demons. They probably have better theology than we do. They, though they will never believe, though they will never repent and bow the knee and serve their creator as they should, they know exactly who he is. They know exactly what he is capable of. And that's part of the reason why they are absolutely terrified when he comes into their midst. They know he has the power to destroy them. In fact, that's the one thing he asks. Have you come to destroy us? Have you come to make an end of us? And instead, Jesus simply calls the demon out and rebukes him. He says, come out of that man and be silent. And we're told that the demon, after he had thrown the man down in their midst, it came out of him, having done him no harm. And then in verse 36, they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Notice again, the power and the authority of Jesus' word. That is what brought the demons out. It was him exercising sovereign control through the power of his word. Just as he spoke creation into existence, now he wields authority over that creation, even spiritual forces. Therefore, they rightly fear Christ. So what about today? If demons exist, if they fear Christ, what what about us? How should we think about demons in our life? Here we need to understand the limits of spiritual forces. The limits of spiritual forces. It is true, 
that there seems to be a concentration of open and obvious work of demonic activity during the days of Christ. The question is, why is that the case? I mean, you just don't, you're not walking down Bay City and seeing guys possessed by, by the devil all the time. Not saying it couldn't happen, but not commonplace. Well, some have said, quite simply, it's just a matter of numbers. There's not an infinite number of demons. There's a finite number of demons, just like there's a finite number of, of other angelic beings. And there's frankly a lot more people in the world today than there were back then. That could be true, but I think more than that, I think it has to do with Jesus and his nature as the Messiah. I think Satan, it's clear from earlier in chapter 4, he knows who Jesus is, he knows what he has come to do, and he is doing everything he possibly can to thwart that mission of God. He is doing everything he possibly can to dishonor Christ and to see his plans be scuttled. And therefore, he is throwing all of his forces into the path of Jesus during this time. Nevertheless, it was Jesus who had authority over them. And nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Jesus still has authority over them. Thus, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in his life, death, and resurrection to bring you into a right relationship with God, the Bible says your life is now united to Christ. You need not fear spiritual forces. You don't have to worry about a demon of some sin taking up residence in your life or even someone possessing you. You, in that sense, in the possessive sense, you belong to God and no one else. Would we ever think that that a place where God's Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, has taken up residence, that he would yield to some demon, to even the devil himself? The answer is no. And as Paul can say, because we have the Spirit, we are sealed by God until the day of our full redemption. In other words, we need not fear spiritual forces. Nevertheless, we do need to be aware of them, especially as God's people, as those following Christ, as those seeking to be conformed to the image of Christ according to God's will. You are the target of spiritual forces. After Easter, we're going to be pausing from our series in Luke to, to do a series on spiritual warfare. And we'll unpack some of these things in more detail. But for now, though, you need to understand that if you're just playing the game, the Christian game, if you're just kind of going along with emotions but are not, are not pursuing real change, real intentional ministry and living for God's glory, the devils could care less about you. You pose no threat. But... If you're pursuing real righteousness, if your life is actually beginning to look like Jesus Christ, it's like waving red to a raging bull. Suddenly you are, you are on the spiritual grid and they will come after you. Their goal is to destroy your faith and make shipwreck of your life. That is exactly what Peter says in chapter 5 of his first letter. The, the devil is like a roaring lion seeking among God's people who he might devour. But again, remember, your life is united to Christ. Your life is united to Christ if you are one of God's people. And just as God shielded Moses in the cleft of the rock, so he shields you by his spirit. So that as we are looking to the captain of our faith, Jesus Christ himself, trusting him, abiding in him, then we will not only be able to identify, but overcome the schemes of the devil as he seeks to undermine our faith. 
Jesus not only has authority over spiritual forces, Jesus also has in this passage authority over sickness. Jesus has authority over sickness. In verse 28, Luke says, And then he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. That is, Jesus was doing that. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had, who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Simon here is Simon Peter, the man who would become the leader of the apostles, the first among equals. And it's interesting that Luke gives no introduction to him whatsoever. And the thought is that Peter was so well known at the time, Luke felt like he didn't need an introduction uh, to those that were in the church. Notice here that Peter was married. It is, in fact, his mother-in-law who was the one that is sick. And describing her problem, Luke uses, as we would, might expect a doctor would, a medical term for which we get high fever in our text. Let me just say, as we read a passage like this, if you've grown up or you've been around church for a while and you've at all been a student of the Bible, you've been reading, you know the stories, you come across a passage like this and frankly, it might be boring. It might be old hat, second nature. Yeah, Jesus heals. We, we get it. We know it, right? But... That's not, how the, that's not how we're meant to read these passages. We're not meant to just, in our Bible, saying, oh yeah, heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law. I remember that. Let's go. Let's move on. I don't remember the next section. That's not what we're supposed to do. As we, as we, read, the, as we read the text, we're supposed to be captivated by the power of Christ. So, so as, you, as, you, as you come to a place like this, try to, try to distance yourself from your familiarity with the text. And put yourself into the place of perhaps Peter in the story or perhaps the mother-in-law and try to imagine what it would have been like at that time knowing the little that you knew about God and about Jesus and watching him work. This, this high fever is raging and it won't come down. You, you've tried everything that, that you know to do. She's been laying in bed perhaps for a couple of days. She's been covered with with blankets and with with clothing, but she is still shivering from the fever with beads of sweat dripping down her forehead, pulling at the base of her neck on the pillow under her head. You you don't think she's necessarily going to die, but you'd hate to see her suffer, and you're not sure when she's going to get better. She is older, after all. It might be something you might fight off in your youth, but she actually might die from such a fever. And then Jesus arrives. And, And Peter has obviously heard about Jesus before, and so he says, go and see if he can do something. So Jesus returns, and they implore him, Look at her. Look at her suffering. Is, is there something that you can do? And Jesus walks over and he, he stands over her. And we're, we're not told, but we can imagine the, the compassion in his eyes. P- perhaps he knelt down and, and held her hand or, or wiped the sweat off her brow. But what we do know is that unlike the magical pagan spells or prayers to false gods, he speaks with one having authority. He actually rebukes the fever and it leaves. It's not that she starts to feel a little bit better. It is gone. The the chills stop. The shaking stops. The sweating stops. The fever 
is gone. Her, her body, if they could have taken the temperature, would have read 98.6 degrees. Perfect. And what does she do? She says, well, we've got all these people here. I've I got to get up and serve some food. Isn't that what the text says? Immediately she gets up and begins serving them. No, on, on one level, that only speaks to her character, but on another level, frankly, that, that is a parable for all who have been healed by Christ, not just physically, but spiritually, who have felt the, the healing touch of his forgiveness of our sins, that the natural and expected response is that we get up and we serve our Savior. More than that, though, now that Christ has healed Simon's mother-in-law, word gets out. People start coming from all around seeking healing from Christ. And that's what he does. He heals and he heals and he heals. And as we think through this passage, we can, we can begin to maybe even see how the Bible helps us to think rightly about sickness and healing and the authority of Christ. And we should definitely know that the Bible goes a long way to... If we will simply listen... Listen to Christ's authority that we will see how it corrects misunderstandings that we often have about healing. Some will tell you today that because Christ has authority over sickness, we should always expect to be healed. But does the Bible teach that? How should we think about healing and sickness? I want us to, to consider just maybe a little bit more broadly, a kind of biblical theology, a theology of the whole Bible, just briefly, about how we should think about healing and sickness and the authority of Christ. And what I want to say is there's simply three truths that should guide our thinking always as we think about this. First is this, immediate healing of sickness is rare. Immediate healing of sickness is rare. I've been a Christian since 1985 and I have only seen one verifiable miracle when it comes to healing, just one. It was back at the church that Melinda and I attended when I was in high school and in college and it was our drummer, and of all places, he had cancer in his hand. And uh, they were, uh, it was a pretty big tumor, and they were going to wind up taking his thumb and his index finger in the surgery. And it was pretty much planned out. And because the cancer they thought was a fast-growing cancer, they were doing multiple scans leading up to the day of surgery. He has his surgery date. He is ready to go in. And I will never forget that God just kind of spontaneously moved among the congregation of about five or 600, and 30 men went to this guy during the time of invitation after the sermon, took him down to the front and prayed for him. And it was a week or two later, he went in for his final scan that they could map out exactly where they would cut to find the surgery that there was no more cancer in the hand. Gone. The doctor was apologetic. He could not fathom how he could have made such a mistake. And there was great rejoicing, but that's it. I've been a Christian since 1985. That's the only miracle that I've ever seen. Suddenly, if I don't believe in them, no. But it makes me believe they're rare. Now, is that, is that what the Bible teaches though, right? Because some will say, well, Botkin, you just don't have enough faith. Then more faith, you see more miracles. Really? Is, is, that, is that what the Bible teaches? No, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that a miracle, by definition, is a rare thing. It is something beyond the norm of what God is doing. So it is, is it an amazing, marvelous, beautiful, joyous event to see a baby born? Absolutely. But don't call it a miracle. God designed it to be that way, and it's happened ever since Adam and Eve. It's not a miracle. It's amazing. 
We rejoice, brings tears to your eyes and a lump in your throat, but it's not a miracle. Okay? That's a little soapbox thing there. But the point is, how we talk so often affects how we think without realizing it. They say, oh, the miracle, it's not a miracle. It's a well-designed process by amazing creator God. The truth is, even in the Bible, miraculous immediate healing is a rare thing. Just, I, I would just challenge sometime, just sit down with your Bible, page, 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 and just mark out the times. In fact, there is this amazing concentration right around the coming of Jesus where these healings take place, where he himself is the one doing it. Read Acts, read the epistles. As soon as Jesus ascends back to heaven, it goes back to being rare again. So, so, so why all of this miraculous attention focused on Jesus? Well, number one, he is the one with the authority to do it. So we should expect that he's going to be doing it. But secondly, it is there to verify, to authenticate, to be a giant sign marker that says, this is really the Christ. Just as this man has the power and the authority to heal physical sickness, he has all the more the ability and authority to heal the sickness of your soul that is going to send you to hell unless you trust in him. That's the point of it. That's the point of it. So healings are rare. And what that means also, frankly, is that just by way of kind of sign application, we should be thankful for the doctors and medicine that God has given our minds and capacities to understand by which normal healing comes. We should get thankful for those things as well. But second of all, we need to understand not only is immediate healing rare, it is not always best. Immediate healing is not always best. And I have to say, this is probably the thing that we struggle with the most. We can't comprehend why immediate healing would not be best. Because we think it's best. We don't want the pain. We don't want the anguish, either in ourselves or in others. But the reality is, Jesus did not heal every person he ever encountered. Didn't happen. Nor does he heal everyone now. Probably the most famous example of someone who we would think deserved to be healed, especially if, as some tell us, it is dependent upon faith, but was not healed as the Apostle Paul himself. Very famously, he writes the Corinthians, and he says, I have this thorn in the flesh. And there's, he doesn't say what it is, but for the most part, it's universally con- consented among New Testament scholars. It is a physical ailment. It, it is some chronic illness that he struggles with. And he is pleading with the Lord at least three times dramatically, take this thing away, God. You know how much more ministry I could do if I did not have this this physical ailment. And God finally speaks to him and reveals to him and says, I'm not taking it away from you because I gave it to you. I gave you the thorn. God, why would you give me the thorn? Because of all the blessings I've given to you. You were not like the other apostles who lived with me and traveled with me, who ate with me, who slept with me for those three years. You were one born out of time. And therefore, I revealed myself dramatically, spiritually, supernaturally to you, and I discipled you myself as the risen Christ, not just the incarnate Christ. I've given you visions of the heavenly places, things that I've told you you can't speak about to anyone else. And if I just let that sit on you, if I just let that go with the privilege you have of being the spearhead for the gospel, not just among the Jews, but to the Gentile peoples, you would be consumed with pride. You would stop trusting me 
and you would start believing in yourself. Therefore, Paul, I gave you this thorn that you might be humble before me, that you might stay close to me and dependent upon me so that you might be the apostle I want you to be. That's what Paul says in Second Corinthians. And now Paul says, I know when I am weak, then I am strong because Christ is strong in me. That's what Paul says. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons why God does not see immediate physical healing as best. Michael Wilcock, in his commentary on this passage of Luke, he has this insightful comments. I would make a broad distinction between two methods of healing, not the obvious distinction between miraculous and medical, but one which lies deeper than that. When God's object is to be known as the healer, he works immediately. Such cures are, as it were, for the shop window, the kind of success story which establishes the reputation of a great surgeon or physician. I see no reason why in some circumstances today Jesus may not choose to work in this way and for this purpose. But where he is already known, he may well say to his trusting patient, I could, of course, give you immediate relief but I would rather take the opportunity to do something far more reaching, which will be to your greater benefit in the long run. You will find it more protracted and perhaps more painful, and you may not understand what I am doing because I may be treating disorders of which you yourself are unaware. Then he will set to work to deal with the needs of the whole person rather than with the obvious need only. He may aim at a calming of spirit or a strengthening of courage or a clarifying of vision as more important objectives than what we would call healing. Indeed, the latter may not be experienced at all in this life, but only at the final saving and raising of the sick when their mortal nature puts on immortality. Immediate healing is rare. Immediate healing is not always best. And what he says leads us to the last thing, and that is this. Immediate healing of sickness will happen on the final day. On the final day. Fanny Crosby is famous among Southern Baptists for though being blind from infancy, she has written amazing hymns which we still sing today. If you're not familiar with her, just borrow one of our hymnals and look up Crosby in the back and read through the hymns. You'll see ones that we sing, some that we we don't sing. She published over 200 in her lifetime, many of which she had to write under assumed names because she feared that no one hymnal would publish so many hymns sung by so many people by just one person. Someone asked her one time, would she like to have her sight restored? She told the reporter, oh no, I'd refuse it. She not only attributed her spiritual maturity to her blindness, but she was gripped by this thought, quote, when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. Crosby lived her life on the rock-solid belief that in the day of resurrection, we will not only see our Savior, but we will do so because we will be just as He is. All of God's people will be given new life in glorified bodies where the healing of all sickness and disease would be completed forever. And thus, like Paul, she believed what is sown, that is like a seed thrown into the ground, so a body dies and is put in the ground. What is sown is perishable but what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown as weakness is raised in power. What is sown in a natural body is raised with a spiritual body. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. 
So when we think about Christ's authority over sickness, He has all authority. He has all authority not just to heal the sickness, catch this, but to give the sickness. We don't, we don't like to hear that, but remember, remember what we just saw both in principle and in example. There would be no Fanny Crosby without the sickness of blindness. There would be no Paul, the spiritual giant, the apostle that we rightly seek to imitate if there had not been a thorn. Both given by God. Therefore, when we pray, do we pray, God, heal them? Yes. But like Christ in the garden, we say, if it is your will. And the weight of our prayers should be on what we know, and that is that God rarely heals in that way. Therefore, we should pray for the doctors, for those treating, for those attending. We should pray, most of all, that God work in the soul and heart of the person, that through that illness, their life be cultivated and shaped and grown in the way that God desires. And that for us and for them, our final hope is not in some miracle but in the glorious resurrection on the final day when the full authority of Christ over all things will be revealed including his authority over sickness Jesus has displayed his authority through the scriptures over spiritual forces over sickness and as our passage ends he has we see authority in mission authority in mission Apparently Jesus was at it healing well into the night. For Luke tells us when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. How different the response here than in Nazareth. Jesus is ready to head out and no one wants him to go. They are literally begging him to stay. But he won't do it. Why not? He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. One of the things that has been consistent for the last 2,000 years when it comes to Jesus Christ is the propensity for people to try to shape him into what they want him to be. The most notorious example has been the three big projects of Western scholarship to find the so-called historical Jesus. The thought is, the, the Jesus, the Christ that we have in the Bible is not the same man who actually walked the earth 2,000 years ago. So you'll actually have shows on the History Channel, on PBS with this title, From Jesus to Christ. Or The Jesus of History and The Christ of Faith. Assuming it's two different things. But the Bible cannot be trusted for its accuracy. And so they go through this agonizing process of analyzing every story, every word that Jesus said. There was even a, a, new, a new Testament that was, that was published by the Jesus Seminar about 25 years ago or so. Every verse was color-coded. Between, somewhere between things where we're definitely sure Jesus said the things, we're definitely sure he didn't say, and everything in the middle. Yeah, great Bible. Who wants to read that? Here was, here was the conclusion, though, that after the Jesus Seminar published, that was the third attempt at recovering the historical Jesus. One scholar looks back at all of them and kind of sagely says, it's interesting that ever these three attempts to find the historical Jesus, no three arrive at the same conclusion about what Jesus looks like. Even more interesting is that in those three attempts, Jesus always came out looking very much like holding the same values as the scholars that went looking for him. In other words, they took their values, their ideas, and they imposed them on this supposed historical Jesus. Even here in Capernaum, people are doing the same thing. 
they want Jesus to be the Messiah they want him to be. Not necessarily the one that God has sent him to be, as he says, but the one that they want. They want him to stay and continue to meet needs, to continue to preach, to continue to heal again and again and again. Can you imagine if Jesus just lives in your town? Nobody ever gets sick again. You know, I mean, uh, yeah, we want you. We want you to stay. But Jesus says, guys, it's bigger than you. It's, It's bigger than that. This is about the kingdom of God and it needs to be proclaimed not just here, but in other towns. It needs to be proclaimed everywhere. And notice how that kingdom of God spreads. It's not by good works. It's not by relief of suffering or by healing. The good news of the kingdom comes through preaching. Through preaching. The kingdom of God comes through the preaching of good news. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with good works. There's nothing wrong with with relieving suffering. In fact, it's expected. It's even commanded in the Bible. But those things are not the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom is not you will be healed and you will be well fed. That's not the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom is you have a Savior who died for your sins and who was raised back to life. That's the good news of the kingdom. I, I want to land here for a second and emphasize this because that there is this kind of subtle undercurrent that, that is sweeping upon us as we become more aware of our, our failure in the last 20 years or so to take seriously the commands and the example to do good works and to relieve suffering. That now the temptation is to put that on equal par with the gospel. And to even go so far as to say, if you preach the gospel but don't do good works, you've not really preached the gospel and no one will get saved. The problem is, the Bible doesn't say that. Ever. The Bible never says that Jesus' miracles, Jesus' healing, Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, anywhere come near to being as important as his preaching of the word of God. In fact, even here, Jesus does not say, I've got to go and heal other people. He says, I must go and preach the good news of the kingdom. Therefore, we might say like Jesus, what good does it do a man to gain the whole world but lose his own soul? Or, what does it gain a man to be well fed and have clean water and experience education but never hear the gospel of the kingdom and so perish under the weight of his sin in the day of judgment? By all means, let us fulfill Galatians 6. Paul says, do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. But never, never forget, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the power of God unto salvation. That's from Romans 1.16. Memorize that. Understand it because it will keep you from sliding in your priorities into other things. Let us never forget that the gospel must be preached for people to hear. The gospel, the good news, the saving work of Jesus Christ is to be received by faith only and not by what we do. Therefore, it must be shared and proclaimed and preached and typed in emails and tweeted and written into the lyrics of songs and gone out into all the world lest no one, no one hear and believe. 
This was the priority of Jesus in mission. He would not be hemmed in. Let us also not be hemmed in by the culture and by popular teachers or friends that we know and say, no, 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 you have to do this. You have to just say, no, what did Jesus say was the priority? Of course he healed. Of course he did miracles. But what was the priority? What was the mission? What always comes first, at least in terms of priority of resources, and, and the amount of time we invest it is the preaching of the good news of the kingdom of God. One of the best churches in Philadelphia, a growing church with solid preaching, proven discipleship methods, and a consistent witness to the community is 10th Presbyterian Church. If you're ever in Philly, go there. I would recommend it. Years ago, though, a theologically liberal pastor of another old downtown church that was on the decline set up a meeting with the pastor of 10th Pres to find out what was the secret of their success because he, he saw this old mainline church dying, crumbling around him, and he, he didn't want it. And he wanted to know the secret. Why is 10th Pres, this old church, this denominational church, Presbyterian church, why is it flourishing? The pastor sat down and he said this, the secret of our success is owed to one thing. We preach the word of God. He says the other pastor was not impressed. In fact, he may have been even a little offended. But the one thing we have seen over and over and over in this passage is that Jesus' authority is exercised by the power of his word. It is the word that has authority. They were astonished at his word which had power. He speaks powerfully through preaching, bringing about the kingdom of God. Even as he, he, we speak his word, And demons and disease flee from people's lives. The same authority is active today for Jesus is alive and reigning over all things. As the gospel of Christ is proclaimed from human lips, Christ himself stands behind that word. He stands with all authority from his heavenly father, freeing people from demonic and more importantly, sinful bondage in their hearts. He stands bringing healing from sickness, both physical sickness as well as spiritual sickness, relieving us even from anxiety in the midst of physical sickness. Jesus stands behind every gospel proclamation, bringing needy sinners from the darkness of their sin and death to spiritual life and light with God. Therefore, let us not only have confidence in Christ, but let's also have confidence to follow him in ministry, trusting in confident in his authority father may that be true of us today and the the weeks and months and years to come that we would acknowledge that in the midst of all the things all of the amazing resources and blessings that you have poured out to us the most important is christ it is him and all of his power and authority that has made provision for us to be known by you to be known as your people and dwelt by your spirit free from our sins. Father, there are many things that we can do in this world for you, but help us to remember that we are doing them all because of the authority of your Son. God, it's in his name that we pray. It's his name that we desire to be lifted up and magnified so that all men might be drawn to him. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.